As we settle in and getting ready for our time in God's Word, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Uh, we are in chapter 12 today. It is part of the Minor Prophets, and we have been working through this book for the last several months and have a couple more to go as we draw near to the end of this great prophetic book. We've been missing Paul and his family this, uh, this week. As we look down in this like row right here, there's a row-shaped hole in our congregation because that's where the Abedas typically dwell. They are traveling to visit some of the family of Eliza, their foster daughter, and to see uh, also Paul and Anna's families both in Nevada. So we're praying for their safe return, and we're excited to see them again soon uh, when they return next week. A father walks into his four-year-old child's room, and there are a box of chocolates that have been missing from the cupboard, and he has reason to believe that his little boy may have something to do with that, so he's going to question him. He sits down with his child, and he asks him, son, are you responsible for the missing chocolates? Speaking very earnestly, the child replies, no, daddy, it wasn't me. I've been in my room playing with blocks. A couple of important facts make this testimony hard to believe. Exhibit A, there is suspicious chocolate mess speared all over the face and the hands of the suspect. <laughs> Exhibit B, littering the floor of this four-year-old's already messy room are nearly a dozen wrappers matching the description of the missing chocolate. Dad has a pretty firm handle on what has happened here, yet his fatherly heart compels him to give the child one more chance to come clean and confess. Son, are you sure you didn't take the chocolates? And despite the overwhelming evidence against him, the little one smiles, looks his father right in the eyes, and says again, I didn't do it, Daddy. It wasn't me. And it's almost cute when you think about this scenario in terms of a little child who's still learning to think and to understand the difference between what is right and what is wrong. If you've been in a similar situation with your own children, you probably had to work really hard not to laugh because we all know it's hard to administer justice when you're cracking up in front of your kid. Uh, but it is less cute when the essentially the same scenario plays out in life of a reasonable adult. When somebody who has grown is clearly guilty of committing sin, of breaking a law, and yet they refuse to acknowledge their responsibility. That is essentially what we, is what we are going to be dealing with here today in the book of Hosea, chapter 12, starting in verse 7, the northern kingdom has been confronted by the prophet Hosea. He is pointing out to them their sin. He is helping them to understand through the word of God that they need to repent, and yet they are struggling and, and, and striving against God. They will not admit what they have done wrong. So we've got Hosea, chapter 7, or chapter 12, we are looking at verses 7 through 14. A merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the day of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets it was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. 
Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, where Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought up Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, and so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Let's play, uh, pray and ask God for his blessings this morning. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you have gifted us this great word that we are not only responsible to take to heart ourselves, but we are also responsible to give to our children. And so, uh, Father, though the, the cries of our children might be a little distracting in service, we are grateful and, and warm of heart to know that they are hearing this truth, Lord God, truth that they're going to need as they grow. Help us, Lord, to be thinking about ways that we can not only apply this truth to our own heart, but how we might share it with others who really need to know who God is, who really have a twisted understanding of who the creator of all things might be. God, let us through the word shed light onto the darkness of people's hearts. God, help us to declare the truth and to point people, of course, towards your Savior, Jesus Christ, who alone can redeem. We love you and are grateful for all that you accomplish in your word, and we trust that you will continue to accomplish it in us as you sanctify us by the prophet's words this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing here in a section where the prophet Hosea is making the use of an extended metaphor. Unfaithful Israel is being compared to Jacob, their, their forefather. Jacob began his days as a trickster and, and, and a very untrustworthy individual. And yet God used the events of his life to change and refine him, making him into a more faithful man and eventually changing his name to Israel, which means God strives with us. Though Jacob was not a man worthy of the love of Yahweh, Yahweh's love brought about transformation in him, a graceful gift from the Lord. And those in the northern kingdom were urged to consider the power of God to change even them, an unfaithful people, a nation which had not listened to the words of God, despite their persistent disobedience to the covenant, God is showing them grace by striving with them. And so this passage that we just read, I don't know if you picked up on it, but it's a back and forth discourse between Yahweh through the words of the prophet and the response of Israel and their attitude to what the prophet has to say to him. In vain of the earlier character of Jacob, his deceitful and, trick, and trickster side, Israel is described in verse 7 as a merchant. Now this is a really interesting word in the original language. That word is not the typical word for merchant that you find in the Hebrew, which is rakal. Instead here, Hosea carefully chooses a different word that is its equivalent. He uses the word Canaan. Now, Canaan we know as the, the people who occupied the promised land before Israel came in and took possession of it. And the Canaanites um, were well known to be merchants. The area of Israel is a very critical piece of land, and that's why people have fought over it for centuries and generations, because much trade goes on from the northern nations above them and the southern nations below them into Africa. And so the Canaanites, the, the word Canaan became a dynamic equivalent for the word merchant. If you called somebody a Canaanite, you could, it could be a way of calling them a merchant. And that's the kind of word that Hosea is using here. He's using that word interestingly because these Israelites, those, they should be a people called after his name, a people who strive with the Lord. Uh, they are now acting more like the Canaanites that they were supposed to displace in that promised land that they came to conquer. One of the practices that they have taken up of these 
ungodly Canaanites is the way that they defraud others in their business practices. And one such practice is the use of unbalanced scales. And this deserves some cultural explanation. Interactions in the marketplace took a certain degree of trust in the days of the Old Testament. To carry a scale of your own long distances was unreasonable, so to visit a merchant, one needed to count on the accuracy of their scales to weigh out both the product that you were trying to purchase and the amount of money that was being exchanged for that product. Back then, money actually held real value. We don't know what that's like in our culture today, but instead of just taking a coin and saying this coin is worth so much, they would often weigh the coin because the value of the material was tied to its weight. And so if you wanted to buy something, you needed to weigh how much money you had to make sure that it was enough gold or silver or whatever the valuable material was to purchase the product. Here's an example that we see in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 9 through 10. Uh, Jeremiah says, So I bought the field which was in Anahoth, or Anathoth, from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. A shekel is a measure of weight. And I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. So this was the normal practice of purchasing things in the days of which Hosea is writing. A deceitful merchant could equip their scales with a lighter than standard weight in order to give the customer the impression that they were getting a fair exchange when in reality it favored the merchant. And we see that warned about in Proverbs 16, 11, where it says, A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. And so we see in this proverb a declaration that the Lord God is a God of truth and justice. He doesn't stand for crooked business practices where somebody weighs the scales in their favor in order to profit at the expense of some victim. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Amos is another one of the minor prophets, and he ministered around the same time as Hosea. He says this as a charge against Israel. He says, Hear this, you who trample the needy, to put an end to the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, so that we may open the wheat market, to make the ephah smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money? and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. So the prophet Amos was particularly trying to call out Israel for their lack of compassion on the weak and the oppressed. And here he notes that the merchants in that day were so concerned with their prophets that they couldn't wait for the beautiful festivals of the Lord to be done. They couldn't wait for the Sabbath the normal Lord's Day cycle to be over because they just wanted to get back into the marketplace and swindle more people out of their money. They were weighing the scales improperly just as Israel is being warned of doing here in the book of Hosea. The love of money often displaces the love for the Lord God. And so these false balances become a tool for deception. But the customer is not the only one being deceived. The merchant in view in verse 7 and 8, in order to ease his own conscience, has taken up lying even to himself. So in response to Hosea's charge against him, verse 7 is a charge, an indictment against the northern kingdom. Verse 8 is to be read as Israel, the northern kingdom's response. They're trying to defend themselves against these charges that come from Yahweh by way of Hosea. It says, Ephraim said, Ah, but I am rich. 
I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. This attitude, this response, says a lot about the heart of those who are in the north. The Israelites insist that their prosperity and their financial security is evidence that they are not guilty of sin. In other words, any critique of the northern kingdom is going to be hard-pressed to grieve their hearts because their measure of what is right is whether or not it works at making them wealthier and stronger as a nation. They believe that the ends justify the means. Does it matter how you get to a place as long as you end up where you want to be? Let's give this some practical theological consideration, first in a personal example, and then also in a corporate example. If I, as an individual, were to come across some money illegally, maybe I engage in a practice which is technically not legal under the laws of my nation, I, I sub-step uh, sub the laws of my land, I cheat somehow so that I don't have to pay taxes when I should, and then I gain a great windfall from that. Is it justifiable to do those kind of things if in the end I give a portion of that to the Lord in the offering on Sunday? Does the ends justify the means? Is it okay for me to sin in breaking the laws of the land if that means I can then turn around and give something beneficial to the church? Clearly, there's something wrong with that, right? On an individual level, I'm responsible to conduct myself in a way that is honorable to God. And a gift that I give to God that is given from a dishonorable place is not going to be honorable to Him. Let's think about this in a corporate sense. If I make the church into a kind of dog and pony show, if we created an atmosphere here that was exciting and had shining lights and fog machines and was more like a concert than a reverent time of honoring the Lord God, can I say that it's right if hundreds of people begin to show up and fill the seats of the church each week? Ask any number of prosperity preachers who are content to change the very architecture of worship in order to meet their man-made ministry goals, and they will say yes. If it gets people in front of the Word of God, then it's, it's worth doing. But that's not what the Word of God actually says. And so typical of a church where flash is more important than substance, while people are brought into the church by an emotional experience, typically that means that the gospel is also not going to be preached there anyway. So the ends do not justify the means. God has called us to worship Him in a certain way. And if we re-engineer worship to look more like what man wants and we fill a giant building, we're not actually honoring God at all because God is not receiving the honor that He has told us to give to Him. There is grave danger, friends, in this kind of pragmatism. Israel has convinced themselves it doesn't matter how I get there, it matters where I end up. But here's the problem. Israel's wealth isn't the end of the journey. That's not even the destination. That's not the point. Communion with God is the end that all of the means that God has provided for us work towards. God is concerned also with the middle, not just the end. He is Lord over the means, and He is Lord over the ends as well. So if God is not your Father in the middle of your journey, don't be surprised 
when he is not your father at the end. If you have no desire to follow after the Lord God, if you're not willing to care for his commands and to, to honor what he's called you to do, do you think that an eternity of honoring him and following his commands in heaven is going to suit your soul? Our sin is an offense to God. What can we obtain by our sin that would be of more value than God's name being honored in our lives? For if you came about something from your sin, if you get to it through sinning, then God was surely not honored in it at all. How does God examine the testimony of this defense? How does he respond to Israel's self-defense legally? He says in verse 9, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. He doesn't even address directly their attitude because what really matters is who he is. Sufficient are these very first words of the response. I am the Lord your God. No other argument really is necessary considering the weight of the true claim that Yahweh begins with. First of all, he is God. He is not just a judge in a courtroom somewhere. He's not just another man doing his best to figure out whether someone is guilty or innocent. He sees all things. He adjudicates all things. The law was his declaration. He is not a God. He is God. God alone. The one and only. The Holy One who is set apart. The origin of all things. And to be God is to be Lord. That means to be God is to be master over all that he has made. Since all creation owes their existence to God, he deserves to have authority over us in our lives. To be the one to whom every knee shall bow. That is the right honor that God deserves. So Israel must consider who is levying these charges against them. Is there any wisdom whatsoever in trying to fight these charges when they come from the one who has made everything and who is sustaining them in that very moment of their guilt. The all-knowing power of God is a comfort to those who trust in him to save them. Omniscience is a word that we give to that feature of God that no other creature has. To know all things at all times simultaneously is something that defines only God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, is the only being that can boast omniscience. And to those of us who count God as Father and Lord, those of us who have been brought into His presence through His amazing grace, that all-knowing power is such a comfort to us. But if you're outside of the gates and God is not your God, if you are a rebel to the kingdom, the fact that He knows all things is terrifying to you because you can't hide. You cannot Go into the shadows and expect your sins against the kingdom to be overlooked. Not only is Yahweh God, but we see here also that He is their God. He is the God of Israel by way of covenant. What does that mean? It means everything to them, or it should. Does any argument contrary to Yahweh's indictment matter at all if this declaration of His divinity and identity is true? The Lord God is the God of Israel. They are to worship Him and follow after Him. In fact, they owe their very identity and existence to His amazing grace to Abraham and then to the fathers who came after. When the true God of Scripture is out of our view, 
when we stop looking at Him and begin to look at justice in terms of what we think is right and wrong, then our capacity to judge our own worth is crippled to the point of incapability. We can't see whether we are good or bad if our eyes are not on the true standard of what is good. There is a reason that our aim as a church is to constantly exalt Jesus Christ in the pulpit of this church. Because if we are not putting our eyes upon the standard of true love, of grace and holiness, then our understanding of whether we are holy or not will mean nothing. Jesus Christ is the picture of true holiness. The sinner can convince himself of his own innocence much more easily if he never looks at himself in comparison to the purity and the innocence of Christ. To judge my own righteousness against the righteousness of another fallen man is to use false balances to weigh my worth. It's as if I've set up a great big scale to try to determine whether I'm holy or not and I weighed it in my favor. If Christ is on the other side, there's no way I could ever balance out to his goodness because only Christ keeps the law perfectly. Christ is the true standard and by him we are measured. In comparison, we always fall woefully short. What a defense against pride and delusion it is for us to look upon Jesus and to recognize that it is only by His perfect work and by His grace to grant us forgiveness that we can even come into the presence of God. And so we see the futility here at the outset of Israel's effort to justify their own deeds before God when the one who is accusing them is none other than God Himself who knows all things. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The unwillingness of Israel to simply admit their sin and ask their God for forgiveness is going to result in a more severe consequence for them. For God cannot allow his covenant people to persist in this pitiful attitude of denial. He will open their eyes in whatever way necessary. And in this case, that means a reversal of the blessing that he had formerly poured out upon them. Hosea 12, 9 says, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, and I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. Now this is worth unpacking a little bit. We know that the way that Israel was commanded to worship God was that every seventh day they were to keep the Sabbath holy, that they were to stop from their labors, and they were to put their eyes and their hearts and minds on the Lord. They did that on Sabbath, on the Saturday. We, as a New Testament church, still see that Sabbath command as holding weight. Our Lord's Day is no longer the last day of the week. It is now the beginning of the Lord's week. And so we take Sunday as a day to focus our hearts and minds on Christ and to give Him glory. But in the Old Covenant, they were also commanded, Israel, to observe certain festival days, certain days where they were to stop from their work for an extended period of time and celebrate together the history that they had with Yahweh. And the Feast of Booths, or Tents, was one of those days. If the connection to God that Israel had with them was threatened by persistent and defiling sin, Yahweh would take the very same land away from Israel and relegate them to a sense of essential poverty again. This Feast of Booths had been given to them to remind them that in their history there was a time when they did not have a home. 
There was a time when they were a displaced people. God had rescued them out of slavery and brought them into freedom, but he had not yet taken them to a promised land to call their own. And during that time, God did not forget his people, but instead he provided for them manna to eat, a special bread from heaven that gave them all the nutrients they needed. He provided for them water from the rock. Everywhere they went, God looked after them. And so as to not forget that, once he provided for them a covenant home, a place of promise, once Canaan became Israel territory, and they began to build true and proper homes for themselves, this Feast of Booths, this Feast of Tabernacles, was a time for them to stop and to remember where they came from. They were to go out and build tents in their yards, and they were to live in those tents like they used to when they were wandering through the wilderness. And for those seven days, they were not to work, but they were to remember and to feast and to praise God for His provision in the wilderness. And so now, since they have forgotten the great power of God to take them where they are and to bless them with their comfort and their peace and their security, God is saying, I'm going to send you back to a time of tabernacles, a time of tents. I'm going to take away this great blessing because this great blessing has in fact become such a distraction to you that I am no longer the focus of your worship and your praise. There is an irony in this, right? The Lord had, through Moses, established for Israel this yearly celebration to remind them of His grace and generosity. But now that they are turning their backs on the commands of Yahweh and will not admit their guilt, He's saying, I am sending you back into a time of booths again, a time of tents. They had not yet learned to appreciate what they had been graciously given. So the quality of their life would be stripped back to this basic existence. God would take away the abundance until the love and appreciation for God would return. Now when we get to verse 11 in our passage this morning, this verse should be read as the voice of the northern kingdom. So it is read as a response. These are not Hosea's words. They are to be read as Israel's attitude. Once again, they are arguing against the charges that have been brought against them by Yahweh. And they bring up two cities within the northern kingdom that are used as case studies to try to defend themselves against this charge that they are in sin. So we have basically two arguments here. The first argument is this. If there really was sin in Gilead, don't you think the city would have come to destruction? You know, how can you say we're guilty? We're prospering. We're doing fine in Gilead. In other words, Israel argues that if things were so bad in the north, they would be seeing the effects of it by now. The proof would be in their destruction. And the second argument that Israel is going to make in verse 11 is based on what's going on in the city of Gilgal. Look at all the religious activity that is going on in Gilgal. They have altars all over the place. Every field has an altar in it. Surely this wouldn't be the case if those in Gilgal were unfaithful people. So you begin to see their logic as they try to justify their actions and ignore the sin that they are plainly guilty of. So let's think first about this first claim. Essentially, what Israel is saying in response to the prophet here is that the ongoing prosperity and stability of cities like Gilead is itself proof that they can't be doing anything too seriously wrong because if they were guilty of serious sin, then they would have already fallen apart as a result of that sin. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the drunkard who has driven his car when intoxicated several times, but he's never run anybody over yet. He hasn't smashed his car yet. So when you try to take his keys away because you see he can barely walk to get to his vehicle, he argues, 
I'm fine. I drive like this all the time and nothing has ever gone wrong. Rather than see that God has had mercy despite the sins of Gilead and has graciously kept Gilead from destruction because of his patience and his long suffering, Gilead instead convinces himself that he can handle it and that his drunken state isn't a danger to him. His disobedience and his rebellion against God is no big deal. He's emboldened all the more, just like that drunkard is emboldened to drive his car home at the end of a night of partying. The real reason that Gilead is not an ash heap is not because they're being rewarded for faithfulness. It's because God's love for them is patient. It's because his kindness abounds even among a sinful people like Israel in the north. His mercy has not yet required them to pay the price for their sin. See, God is merciful, yes, but he is also a faithful judge. And that means that sin must eventually be paid for. Though God may strive with the people and give them time to repent, that doesn't mean that he has swept justice under the rug. It doesn't mean that he's turned his eye away from the law-breaking that has happened under his watch. As a gracious God, he has made it clear that if his people turn to him with a humble heart and acknowledge their sin and their need for his help, he will certainly provide it. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. But if there is no repentance, God will not heal. We have seen Hosea plea for his own people to do exactly this on several occasions throughout the book. Do not forget God's desire to be kind to you. His heart for his people has not disappeared. But if this sin persists, then a severe mercy must be brought upon the people. He must, as a good father, allow them to taste the sting of their sin. Ultimately, Yahweh accomplishes perfect justice through Jesus, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. God the Son pays the penalty for people's sin. He doesn't just act like the sin never happened. He suffers in the place of all who put their faith in Him. The cross upon which Jesus was hung is absolutely necessary because God is absolutely just. Our sins had to be dealt with and the only way to be dealt with was through Jesus Christ. Even the old covenant believer, friends, when they trusted in Yahweh, and confessed their sins to Him, they were benefiting from the grace that Jesus would eventually provide for them. They didn't know the name of Yahweh yet, but they were obeying the Lord and trusting Him with their hearts, and their sins were washed away by the sins of Christ as well. For Israel to deny the charges that God has made against them is to also ignore the solution that the righteous and gracious judge has so generously provided for them. It's for them to ignore His grace. That is their first defense. Their second defense in verse 11 is no better. They say in Gilgal they are they're offering so many sacrifices. Their altars are heaped up throughout the fields. And that's an interesting turn of language there because the altars that Israelites were supposed to use were never to be cut stone, man-made works of art. They were to be heaps of stone piled up. And so Israel is re responding to the prophet's charges by saying, we, we've got plenty of places to worship up here in the north. There's a lot of religious activity going on. How can you say that we're not faithful to the Lord? They think their works 
are sufficient when in fact they are far from perfect. And because of the nature of how law works, they would have to be perfect in order to be good enough. Instead of being a remedy to their sin, the superficial kind of worship that the Israelites in Gilgal have been offering to Yahweh is actually part of what they need to repent of. And we have seen that in earlier chapters. Yahweh is not pleased to receive their gifts when there is no true heart of repentance behind the gifts that are being offered. On the surface, their religious offerings might seem like a gift to God, but they represent rebellion cloaked in worship because their defense of themselves shows that they have clearly not admitted that they actually need God's intervention. So they're trying to solve the problem by giving more of the wrong thing that they're already giving to the Lord, which is not pleasing. It reminds me of something that happened recently to my family. My van recently broke down, and I set about trying to figure out why. You know, as a pretty large family, we got to have that van so we can get everybody from here to there. And in order for a gas engine to work, it needs three essential things. It needs air, it needs fuel, and it needs spark. And if our governor here in California has his way, then none of that's going to matter in 2035. But I'm going to use this illustration while I can, right? Air, fuel, and spark. So I was convinced that the problem was fuel, that my car did not have enough fuel. So I changed the fuel pump. Nope. I changed the fuel pressure regulator. Nope. I fixed every vacuum leak that I could find so that the ratio of air to fuel would be just right. Did that solve the problem? No, the van would still not start. Part after part, so many parts, and the van still does not run. So much free time spent on this van. And the reason it wouldn't run is because the problem wasn't fuel. I could have changed every fuel line. I could have changed the fuel tank. I could have changed the fuel injectors and it wouldn't have solved anything because the problem was spark. A $40 coil solved the problem. The van started right up after 10 minutes changing that one part. When you're trying to solve the problem the wrong way, the solution isn't just to do more of the wrong thing you're doing. The hollow loveless worship that was being offered in Gilgal was not pleasing to God. So the fact that there was plenty of it in Gilgal didn't make anything better. They needed a repentant heart. That was the problem. So you can see the logical error in the northern kingdom, thinking that either of these defenses would hold water against Yahweh's prosecution. But in verse 12, we see that Yahweh takes an interesting route in rebutting their arguments. Rather than address these arguments logically, he doesn't even bother with that. He turns to the imagery of Jacob, their forefather, who was a major focus of the first half of chapter 12. So you may remember from last week that Hosea called the nation's attention to Jacob's uh, life, this ancestor, reminding them of the ways that God had transformed Jacob's heart. He had started out as a trickster, as as a lawbreaker, as a conniver, but in order to make him acceptable to the Lord, he put him through some difficult trials. He had him suffer for a time, and he refined him, he changed him. Since true heart change was what Israel needed to experience, Hosea showed them a vivid example of one who had gone through that kind of change and transformation. Jacob had started off life in a rebellious rebellious manner. 
even taking advantage of his older brother at a time of great vulnerability to, to steal his birthright, essentially, to swindle him out of his rightful place in the family. And when Jacob's sin was catching up to him and he found himself in great danger of being captured and killed by his understandably bitter brother, Esau, it was then that the angel of the Lord appeared to Jacob and physically wrestled with him through the night, leaving him with a lifelong injury, knocking his hip out of joint, but also blessing him with a new name, right? That new name was Israel. Jacob means con artist, trickster. Israel means God strives with us. So this man who seemed to be a hopeless rebel was being transformed into the father of many nations. His 12 sons would go on to form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so through his hardship and struggle, Yahweh humbled Jacob's heart and made him to see how there was no recourse but to trust the Lord. And in verse 12, Hosea taps into that history again. In light of Israel's stubborn refusal to acknowledge their sin and to turn away from it, Hosea reminds them that Jacob, when he was ready to be married and sought a wife for himself, traveled to the land of Aram. Now, Aram was a place where there wasn't much of any devotion to God. It was a place of great deception, of great hostility towards Yahweh. But there, Jacob encountered the beauty of a young woman named Rachel. And he was immediately drawn to her. And he went straight away to plead to her father for her hand in marriage. Genesis 29, 18, Jacob says, Now Jacob loved Rachel, and so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. That's quite a commitment. This is a, a sincere love that we're talking about here. But what did Jacob find when he went to her father, Laban? He found one just like himself. He found a swindler. He found a trickster. Laban had two daughters, and he had struggled to find a suitor for the older daughter, Leah. Leah had problems with her vision. And so she was not as useful to Laban as Rachel was, who was younger and who was a shepherdess herself. So Laban devised a plan to keep his more productive daughter, Rachel, and to unload the burden of caring for Leah onto Jacob. Jacob serves Rachel for se Rachel's father for seven years, shepherding his flocks of sheep, thinking that it would earn him the hand of the woman that he loved. But when his period of service was complete, Laban altered the terms of the contract, insisting that Jacob marry his other daughter, Leah. And there's some interesting circumstances around that if you want to read that back in Genesis. We can't get into it today. But Jacob ended up having to work another seven years of service before he could have the hand of the one whom he loved. And so here, Hosea wants this reader, or his readers in the north to see two things from this reference to historical Jacob. He wants us to see that as Jacob was willing to labor and to labor and to labor for his beloved Rachel, so too does Yahweh strive for Israel, his bride. The imagery of Jacob striving for the woman he loves, being willing to labor for years and endure the sin of others to win her to himself, is in many ways like how Yahweh has endured much hardship and treachery to win the nation of Israel as a kind of bride for himself. And Hosea, the prophet who's writing this, knows this firsthand, right? He's the one who struggled with his own wife, Gomer, having to put up with her unfaithfulness and during much heartache and pain, ultimately buying her back from her sinful state in order to make her his bride again. And we've seen how the prophet's rocky marriage is a living metaphor of the kind of committed love that God has shown for his people Israel. 
And though she is in many ways unworthy of his love, he's been willing to do the very hard work of keeping her near to him and expressing love despite the fact that he's, what he's gotten back is contempt and insult. So Israel needs to see Yahweh's confrontation of her sin and rebellion. She needs to see that in that, he's only trying to redeem her from what is dangerous to her. And he will endure great personal cost to himself in order to achieve that. He's not trying to destroy Israel by insisting on her repentance. He is securing for her a covenant future. But in order for that covenant to work, Israel's rebellion must be dealt with. And the second thing that Hosea shows us by referring to this story of Jacob and his pursuit of a wife is that Hosea wants us to see the shepherding heart of our God. In order to see this, let's look back again at the verses we're studying today. In verse 10 of chapter 12, it says, I spoke to the prophets. Note that. It was I who multiplied visions. And through the prophets, verse 10 again, I gave parables. Skipping down to verse 13, it says, By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. We see here clearly that the shepherding heart of God is to keep his people out of danger. And he does that by using the prophet to guide them and to warn them and to correct them. How is God shepherding his people? By way of these godly men and the word that he gives to us through them. By the prophets, God's people receive his command. And in order to be the people of God, they have, they have to be willing to hear those words and respond in faith. I love how uh, theologian Joshua Moon puts that. He's, he says, Israel was to be a community who, among all the people of the earth, listened to Yahweh's voice. It is the point we find made by Jesus himself. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, John 10, 27. Or as an imperative, this is my son, listen to him, Matthew 17, 5. To be the church, the gathered people of God, is first of all to listen and hear the voice of God who speaks. And that is the heartbreak of this section of Hosea. Because God is speaking to them through the prophet, and they refuse to hear. They would rather argue on their own behalf and tell God he is wrong about their iniquity than say, yes, Lord, you are right. I repent. Have mercy on me. The northern kingdom has shown an embarrassing boldness in responding to the prophet Hosea as though they've been falsely accused by him. They have refused to accept the prophet's charges that they are guilty of heartless worship, lacking true love and devotion, that they are guilty of unholy alliances with godless nations, that they are guilty of idolatry and adapting the worship practices of pagans. Rather than hear these charges and humbly be led towards repentance and restoration to Yahweh, the northern kingdom has largely rejected the one whom God has sent. What it boils down to is that these Israelites have refused to be honest with themselves about their own depravity. Their hearts are wicked and they're in need of revival and that revival starts with an admission that they have failed to keep the law of God. Is that not something that you and I are guilty of at times as well? Have we not broken God's commands, friends? Are we not in need of a Savior who can overcome our sin and pay the full price of our sins? And yet how often do we try to convince God in ourselves that the sins that we commit are just a little thing? Nothing to be worried about. Nothing in comparison to the grand 
and newsworthy sins of other people in the world. We spend time asking God for so much blessing and comfort and provision. How much time do we spend on our knees confessing to God our need for mercy before all things? That the sins that we have committed have one solution and that only Christ is that solution. The nation of Israel's pride has kept them from seeing that the prophet's work is not a work of destruction. It is a work to bring about that repentance and to show the people of God that there is no hope apart from the covenantal love of their king. He is the one who can save them from their sin. But he will not save them apart from true repentance. His mighty word is the means that he uses to expose their sin and to lead them to true repentance. I I want us to remember as we conclude, the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica to encourage them. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. To hear and to receive the word of God. It's what he calls us to do. The prophet was a tool to bring the nation to repentance. Ignored, this plea will not manifest its gracious power in the northern kingdom. Though redemption will come, the north is not in that phase yet. They are not ready for it. They're going to have to suffer historically for the bitter provocation that they brought about to the Lord, as we see in verse 14 of our passage today. It has a consequence. The consequence is that God will withdraw his grace from them for a time and allow them to feel that sting of their rebellion so that those who truly belong to him will repent and will turn away from their selfish ways. The irony here is that true repentance can only come from the Lord too, friends. Even repentance is not a work that we can boast of. It's not a flag that we can fly and say, look, of all the people of the world, at least I was smart enough to repent because we can't come to him unless we're drawn to him unless he humbles us and brings us low. And friends, this is an amazing thing about God. He uses all of history to make this come to pass. And he's using this historical time in in Israel to bring to pass their humbling and their brokenheartedness so that when the Messiah is brought forth forward, they'll be ready to receive him. The prophet was a tool to bring the nation to repentance and ignored this plea will not manifest itself in the gracious power that God intends for it to. By grace, the mercy of God, we see the word of God for what it is. Though the true things that it says about us are hard to receive at times, they reveal to us things that we would rather keep hidden. And though they humble us and expose our weakness, they do us a great service, friends. For it is in this weakness that we see most clearly the undeniable need that we have for God to graciously save. And I think in conclusion about the opening illustration. Those who are in Christ come to God as to that little boy whose father wants the best for his child. With the chocolate on the face and the hands, with the wrappers all over the room, his guilt is plain. The father does not send that child away and say, you are no longer my child for his failures. Even though this child lies to his face, the fatherly love of God towards that child receives him still. Will he punish the child and give him a discipline so that he'll learn? Yes, 
He's a loving God. And he doesn't want to raise up a child who persists in lies, who won't see the truth, because that's a pitiful existence. So the God who loves us will refine us and will draw his, our hearts near to him again, but he will never cast away those who belong to him. Are you in Christ? Do you sit today before a father who loves you and wants to see you restored and, and wants to see you grow and learn and, and grow in maturity? Or do you sit before a judge because there is no repentance in you? Do you sit before a judge who rightfully says, you are guilty of breaking my law and the wages of sin is death? Apart from Christ, there is no hope for the lost. Turn to the Lord Jesus and trust him for your salvation. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are mighty to save and that it is your joy to save the lost and to make something holy out of that which was detestable and to be thrown away. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to take every ounce of wrath that the sinners who trusted in you have stored up for themselves. You paid the penalty in full so that God could be proved not only merciful, but just and righteous as well. And so we thank you, Lord God, for the example of your work through Hosea the prophet, for the example of this nation of Israel, even in their stubbornness, we learn things about ourselves. We learn things about the new covenant that we are a part of as the church, God, that it is a better covenant, that through it we see the promises given in the old, realized in the new. So, Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. All of our hope and joy is founded on his person and his work. And so, Lord God, give us great peace today knowing that we are yours, that you as Father will not let us go, and help us to rejoice even when you train us up in better righteousness through discipline and correction. You are holy and good, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.